Well, Cedar Street Baptist Church, again, I love you so very much. It is the joy of my heart to be with you here today, and I mean that. And uh, it's great to be in God's house, and I've just enjoyed walking through the book of Ruth with all of you. We are now at our final stage of Ruth, and we're in our sixth week of a sermon series that I have entitled, Redeeming Love. Redeeming Love. And each week as we've walked through this book together, I've tried to draw out one key word that we can either learn or find the pure example of in this book. So, in the past six weeks, we've talked about what brokenness is. Sin and death and separation, what it is to be at ground zero. Then we've talked about loyalty, people that stick with you when times are tough. We've talked about grace how God provides for us in ways that we can't provide for ourselves. We've talked about submission, how those who are submissive to authority are those who are strong, not those who are weak. We talked last week about redemption, how the redemption that Boaz offered to Naomi's family by promising to marry Ruth points to the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. And that leads us to our sixth and final week. We're going to be talking today. If there's one key word that would encapsulate today, it would be the word restoration. In fact, the title of our message today is a celebration of our restoration. A celebration of our restoration. Here's a fun question to get you thinking about restoration. If you had unlimited resources to fully restore one personal possession, what would it be and why? I'm handing you a blank check, and you have as much time and money as you need to fully restore one thing, what would it be and why? Here's my guess, knowing the people of Cedar Street Baptist Church. Some would restore an old boat and take it out fishing. Ronald Cardell shaking his head no. That's because he would never let his boat get to a point where it needs to be restored. Some would choose a classic car and tune it up to take it to a trade show. Some would choose a rustic farmhouse that's been in the family for generations. Some would choose a piece of antique furniture to de-stress it and repurpose it as a piece of living room artwork. Uh, I know at least a few people in the room that would do that, because most of them meet at my house to do it. Here's the thing. I got a confession. We confessed earlier. I'm going to confess to all of you. I have a slight obsession with home restoration TV shows. Perhaps you do as well. All right? Fixer Upper, Property Brothers, and Flip, Flipper Flop. I've seen every episode of all three for about the last 10,000 seasons. Uh, and you would think I wouldn't. Ronald Cardell is probably confused, and Kenny Davis is confused because I don't know how to turn a wrench or use a hammer. But I sure love watching other people do it. In fact, I've, got, I've made it a sport where I actually yell at the TV screen when homeowners say and do some of the most ridiculous things. It got so bad that uh, when I was living in Pennsylvania a couple of years ago, when I was working, this was the one year I was out of baseball and I was working in corporate America as a marketing director for a network of hospitals, I had a roommate who was in sports casting. He was the broadcaster for the Phillies AAA team in in, uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania. And when he moved into the house, we talked sports all the time, but I said, you hang around me long enough, you're going to get obsessed with Property Brothers. And he said, really? I said, man, I love a home restoration. 
and he watched it with me week after week after week, and I got him hooked on it. And I, I knew the day I had him hooked because I came home from work, and he was already home, and I was walking up the stairs to go to the living room, and I hear from the back of the room some man screaming, What are you doing? Kitchens and bathrooms sell houses. And I realized I had made him an addict. Here's the deal. I guess I see a lot of things spiritually. I see a lot of things through the lens of the gospel, the lens of the Bible. I love the before and after picture of a full home restoration project. Don't you? Don't you love to see things that were broken into a thousand pieces be fully restored and had that that perfect glean and shine on them? I believe most of us do. We love to look and read about and watch and see the before and after photos of a restoration project. And I don't think this this is an accident. I don't think this is coincidental. I think God has hardwired us to look for that because it is a portrait of what God is doing in our lives if we've given our life to Jesus Christ. It's not just that we've been saved from the flames of hell. It's that if we have the Holy Spirit in us, He is restoring us in our brokenness to make us more like Jesus Christ. That's what God is doing. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's why I ask Dave every week when he stands up here to recite our mission statement. We want to be a church where heads, hearts, and hands are being transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is in the restoration business, and we praise Him for that. We praise Him for that. I believe that's the real reason why we love restoration projects. And so we're at the end of Ruth. We're in the end of chapter 4. And we're going to see that now that uh, the promise of redemption has come, that Boaz has promised that he is going to redeem Naomi's family by marrying Ruth, we're going to see in verses 13 through 21, this is going to go from redemption to restoration. God is getting ready to restore this family. And as we walk through the passage, I want us to see two things. Okay, As we look at the big idea, here it is. The restoration of Naomi's family through a newborn son points us to the restoration of God's kingdom through an eternal son. I want us to see the earthly part of this story and the eternal part of this story. And I want you to look into your own heart and and know why you love restoration projects. Because it points to what God is doing in us through the gospel. So, if uh, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Ruth. Again, we'll be in chapter 4 at the very end, verses 13 through 21. If you do not have a Bible, please grab the pew Bible in front of you. We're on page 265 in your pew Bibles. And if you would stand at this time, out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, perfect, and sufficient word, we are in Ruth chapter 4. Verses 13 through 21. Hear God's word to us, starting in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he wept, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, 
the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you so much, Father, that you, you love restoration projects more than we do. And that you could have left us in a broken state and bulldozed us to the ground the way most do when projects are beyond repair. But you didn't do that. You sent your Son to do for us and eventually your Spirit to do in us what we could not do for ourselves. And right now we come to you declared perfect, but being restored to that perfection. And so, Father, as we walk through the end of Ruth chapter 4, I pray, Father, that you would open up our eyes, open up our minds, open up our hearts to see the beauty of this passage and know what you did in the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, but what you're also doing in our lives if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ because of the gospel. So, Father, be with us and help us to truly understand what it means to be restored in a kingdom that you're putting back together brick by brick. We love you, we thank you, and praise you. I offer these words in Christ's name. God's people said, Amen. I do love a restoration project, and maybe that's why I love the end of this passage so much. And as we walk through it again, as I've said the whole book, let's look at the earthly story because it's real. Ruth is a real person. Boaz is a real person. And I'll bring you back to this at the end of our time together. We're going to see Ruth and Boaz in heaven. You read stories like this and you begin to think that they're characters in a fictional piece, but they're not. These are legitimate, real human beings, and God used them in a mighty and special way. We'll see at the end, because through their faithfulness, they kept the bloodline together that Jesus would eventually come through the line of David. But before we get to that, we've got to go back to the very beginning here in verse 13. And the first of the three things I'd like to draw to our attention as we have a celebration of restoration. Number one, let's look at the birth of restoration. The birth of restoration. Verse 13 says this, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now, a couple of things as we, as we start the passage here. One thing the author of Ruth is doing is showing us with these quick stories of going from the threshing floor to the gates of the city where they're talking about Boaz redeeming Ruth immediately to Boaz deciding to marry Ruth is they're showing that Boaz is a man of his word. He does not waste time when he says he's going to do something. He does it. When he told Ruth several chapters ago, I will redeem you and restore your family line, your family heritage. I will marry Ruth and I, and I will restore this line. But there's a redeemer in the family line who's closer to you than I am. I'll go find out. And he found out the next morning. And he brought that redeemer to the gate and said, will you marry this woman and buy this lane? And if you won't, I will. And the guy said, I don't want any piece of that. And Boaz said, okay, I'll redeem her. Well, the reason why chapter 4, verse 13 starts off this way is because the author is saying, you know what? Boaz said he was going to do it, and he did it. He said he was going to redeem her, and he redeemed her. And if you haven't been here for a long time, or if you've missed the past few weeks, let me just in one sentence, uh, or one paragraph maybe, one statement, recap what a redeemer is. He is a kinsman redeemer, which means that Boaz comes from the same genealogy as Elimelech, who was married to Naomi and died. 
And because Elimelech had two sons who died, there was no more sons to carry on the family line. So it was Boaz who decided to marry Ruth, and if they had children, that child would carry on the family line and receive the inheritance of the land and also preserve the Jewish faith in preparation of the Messiah. So when Boaz marries Ruth, he basically helps produce a child. That child gets all the inheritance. Boaz does not receive any of that. He's simply doing this to restore the family line. It was broken. When Elimelech died and his two sons died, there was no more son to carry on the line. But God blessed. And Boaz was a man of his word. And he decides he will marry Ruth. And that's exactly what he does in verse 13. And then God responds as a, as a God of his word as well. So basically, we go from Boaz taking Ruth and becoming his wife to conception where it says the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Now, when, Ru- when Boaz married Ruth, that's when redemption took place. But when this son was born, that's when the restoration project really began. Because now there was an heir. Now there was a son who would take the family line and preserve it. Now Elimelech, who is dead, has uh, someone in his family with his last name that will continue the family heritage. This is a tremendous blessing. And this newborn son, this newborn son inaugurates this family's restoration. And we'll see at the end of this, this had to happen for Jesus to come. Because this was the family line that Jesus comes through. So in some way, if Ruth was not faithful and Boaz was not faithful, and ultimately God was not faithful, you and I would not be in a church today celebrating Jesus, celebrating our salvation. All of this had to come together in one beautiful, sovereign plan that is beyond our understanding. God did it. But this newborn child was the birth of it. And then, of course, Jesus Christ as the eternal Son is the birth of our restoration. And that's really the whole point of this story. Without Jesus coming as the Son of God, being born of a virgin, our family lineage would die. And we would not be people of faith. And we would not spend eternity with God. We would spend an eternity separated from God forever. It's the beauty of Ruth. It's the beauty of this story. So that's the birth of restoration. But let's move further on down the text. Let's take a look, number two, at the basis of restoration. This verse, verse 14, is the whole point of the entire book. If you miss verse 14 of chapter 4, you miss Ruth. This is the whole point of the story. This is the single most important verse, and here it is. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. This is the most important verse because God is the hero of this story. God is the hero, and God is the hero of every story in this book. And what we do as human beings, we often have a way of making Jesus or God the hero only partially. And as we tell our testimonies, we kind of make ourselves the hero a little bit. But listen to the Scriptures. I picked out just a few stories in the Bible. I could have picked out many. But I just want you to listen of how we miss this. All right, the first one, think about when Moses parted the Red Sea. In the book of Exodus, Moses parts the Red Sea. And when we read that, we're tempted to say, whoa, look at Moses. 
He led the Israelites out of captivity and they, they held up the rod and, and, the, and the seas parted. Man, Charlton Heston, Charlton Heston. You know, we think of Moses. But listen to what Moses says in Exodus 15 too. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. All glory and honor belong to him and him alone. He's the hero of the parting of the Red Sea. Now here's the one that we get messed up the most. David and Goliath. How many times... Have we been in some Bible study or, or VBS or children's church or it, we're tempted to tell the story of David and Goliath in such a way of saying, if you trust in God, you can be David and have the strength that David had. It's not about the strength of David. It's about the power and the sovereign plan of God. In fact, this is what David says to the Philistine in 1 Samuel 17, verses 46 through 47. He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the, head, the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. David said, don't look at David, look at God. Sometimes when we look at the story, we look at David. The reason that God chose a shepherd boy and a slingshot and a couple of stones is because it's ridiculous to think that he could have killed a Philistine with his own strength or skill. It had to be God who uses the weak vessels to show his strength. We are made perfect in his weakness. It is he that is the hero, not us. And what about, uh, here's just one more idea. In Acts chapter 2, we celebrate the beauty of Pentecost. Pentecost, this miracle where the Holy Spirit comes down and revival breaks out. People are speaking in a thousand tongues and hearing the gospel and getting saved. And, and the apostle Peter stands up and speaks. And the Bible said 3,000 souls come to salvation after one sermon. The altars were open and Peter was preaching. But it wasn't the eloquence of Peter. It was the power of God. Because at the end of Acts chapter 2, it says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It didn't say, and the eloquence of Peter added to their number. It said, and the Lord added to their number. It was the power of God. And He is the hero of that story. He is the hero of Ruth. And He is the hero of our story as well. If you're here today, and you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was a day that you did not know Christ. And you, the Bible says you were an enemy of God. That's the polar opposite of what we sang this morning, that we're friends of God and we are declared friends. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So we are friends of God and we sing that and we celebrate that. But there was a day that you weren't. And you went from being an enemy to being a friend by the act of God, not the act of man. And when we tell our testimonies, sometimes... We give ourselves a little bit more credit. We tell our testimonies almost as if it was a pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I got to rock bottom and then by determination, I turned it around. Well, I can tell you this right now. If God left me where I was in my dark apartment in Augusta, Georgia in 2007 when I made my profession of faith, if he left me where I was, I wouldn't be here today. Not just as a pastor, I probably wouldn't be on this earth. In my own power, I never would have made a U-turn. It was the Spirit of God. Now, I was responsible to respond to that in repentance and faith. There is human activity in that, in that plan of salvation, but salvation belongs to God. 
Salvation's initiated by God, and he gets the credit because he's the one who secured it. He's the one who made it possible. He's the hero of your story and your story and your story. God's the hero. We, we simply get to be partners with him in the story of our lives. And when we see him and we gather at the feet of his throne, what we'll be saying to him for eternity is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God and the Lamb. What we really will be saying, it's all you, it's all you, it's all you. I mean, I really don't think we realize. You know how I know we don't realize? Do you know the most popular song played at funerals? And it pains me to say this because I happen to love the artist of this song and someone else in this room does too. The most popular song in the last 20 or 30 years played at funerals is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. It, it, It has been played at several funerals of my family members. My Uncle Jimmy, whom I love dearly, he absolutely insisted that be played at his funeral if god calls me home tomorrow don't any of you ever request frank sinatra's song at my funeral or when you get to heaven i'm gonna have something to say about it (laughs) it is the greatest tragedy of all if you are to look at someone and said their life was about them it's the greatest tragedy of all to say everything i did i did my way You know, there's a lot of things in life I have done my way, and I've gotten my donkey stuck in a few ditches. I don't know about you. But I'm going to tell you something else. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. I want to do it His way, not mine. And when I die, as much as I've messed it up and as many times as I've fallen in the ditch of going the way, I hope that at the end of my life they can say He tried to do it Christ's way, not His own. And that's what I love about this story. That's what I love about this verse, verse 14. I mean, this is a beautiful verse. It is God who does this. The women looked, said, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May His name be renowned in Israel. Not Boaz's name. When he says His, he's not talking about Boaz. He's talking about God. May the God of Israel's name be known all over the land that this is the God who restores things that are broken. And when He's done... There, He will do in our lives as well through Jesus Christ. He restores us. And that is the basis of our restoration. So we've seen the birth of restoration, the basis of restoration. Now we get to verses 15 through 21. Let us close this whole sermon and series out with the beneficiaries of restoration. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. But God never blesses you so that the blessing will end with you. Any blessing that God gives in your life is a blessing that is to be enjoyed, but is a blessing to be shared. In fact, when God wants to bless someone over here, He may bless you so that you will bless them. And those blessings can be financial, they can be spiritual, they can be emotional, they can be anything. Well, we see the blessing that God brought down to Naomi and Elimelech's family by bringing a Redeemer. We have a taste of that blessing. We have become the beneficiaries, and in case we miss it, the author of Ruth puts one of those fun little genealogies in there. Now, I know everyone loves to read genealogies. I, uh, I think of two individual stories when I think of genealogies. First one, and I know she's not here today, and certainly be in prayer for Miss Joyce. I know she's healing up a little bit. She had a fall last week. But she, uh, Miss Joyce Watasek, I'll never forget this. Years ago when uh, Casey Shaw was leading Bible study here on a Sunday night, and we, he would have us congregationally uh, choose different people to read passages, and it got to Miss Joyce. 
and she got like a five-verse passage that was nothing but genealogies. And she got to the third word and said, and this person, and this person, and a whole lot of bunch of people I ain't never met before. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you feel that way when you read Scripture. The Old Testament can bog you down sometimes. But even if you didn't fill your heart with joy to read all these names that you've never read, they are important. Because this is God's Word. And he does preserve every word for a specific purpose. I wouldn't suggest that you spend six months trying to analyze genealogies because that you'd miss the big picture. However, this genealogy is really important. And it's really important because it is pointing to how God used this one individual family to affect eternity. How did he, how did he do it? Well, he restored Elimelech's family line. Elimelech was part of the tribe of Judah. And through Elimelech's line, they brought Boaz, who married Ruth. And they had a child named Obed. Okay? And then it says, this child Obed had a father named Jesse, and Jesse had a father named David. And perhaps you know David, because he's one of the most prominent characters of the Old Testament. If you ever read the Psalms, he's authored most of them. And it is King David, that, that beautiful royal bloodline, that brings us to Jesus Christ. So we can make a beeline from Ruth to Jesus. So without Ruth, there is no Jesus. Without Ruth and Naomi having Obed, there is no Christ. And without Christ, there is no salvation. So we're in this sanctuary this morning experiencing the blessings of restoration that God brought to us through a newborn son named Obed and an eternal son named Jesus. And I can't wait to hug Ruth's neck when I get to heaven, give her a big old kiss on the cheek, and say thank you for your faithfulness. And then I'm going to shake Boaz's hand and say, brother, you got it all together. That's a man that got all his ducks in a row. You know, I, I just, uh, this is our family. You know, you know, we have family Bibles. We lay on our coffee tables. And we write our own genealogies in there, don't we? Most of you, uh, who uh, of the older generation in our church, that's how you kept family records. You kept them in your Bible. You, they go back to, you know, 100 years ago, we didn't have computers. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have ways to save all this stuff. You want to go back to how families were put together, go back to your Bible and see family records laid out. But you know what? The stories inside the Bible are our family record. Naomi and, and Elimelech and Boaz and Ruth and Obed and Jesse and, and, and David, they're part of our family. We've been adopted into the family of God. These are our family members, and we have celebrating, we should celebrate the restoration because we are beneficiaries of what took place. Obed is an earthly restorer as the grandfather of David, but Jesus is our eternal restorer as the Son of God, and we all benefit from this. And what is it that God's restoring? Before we get to the very end of summing this whole book up, he's do, God's restoring two things. He is restoring His kingdom and he is restoring your soul. Here's what I mean by that. Perhaps you've heard me week after week mention the term kingdom of God. We talk about it all the time. But you've got to think about the whole Bible to understand the kingdom. In the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve were in the garden before the first sin, God was establishing a kingdom. It was a kingdom where he was the king on the throne. We were a loving support system of that kingdom but we were supposed to come under his commands under his love and blessing and under his rule but he gave us the free will to not do that he gave us the free will to choose whether we wanted him to be on the throne or we wanted to be on the throne ourselves and that's really why adam and eve ate the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
They did not want to listen to God. They wanted to be like God. All right, that's what Satan said. God knows that if you eat that fruit, you will be like God. And they thought, well, maybe I'd rather be like God than be under God. And they rejected his kingdom. And the whole Old Testament is this nation of Israel being formed as God is trying to prepare us for the restoration of his kingdom. Now, it's not fully restored in Israel because they fail more than they succeed. If you've ever read the book of Judges, you know what I'm talking about. So then Jesus comes, lives the way we should live, dies the death that we deserve, raises from the dead three days later, and then sends down his Holy Spirit to inaugurate a new kingdom. A kingdom where our hearts are being changed and God is once again on the throne and we come under his loving guidance as part of his kingdom. He's establishing his kingdom. And right now, today, that's a spiritual kingdom. But one day, it will be a literal physical kingdom. We see in the book of Revelation, the new heavens and new earth. We call it the new Jerusalem. Heaven and earth will collide. There will be a new earth. You will have a new body and you will live eternally under the rule and reign of Christ. There will be no more democracy upon the return of Jesus Christ. It will be a theocracy, and Jesus is on the throne, and we will be awful glad that He's there. Amen? That's what He's restoring. But before it becomes a physical kingdom, right now it's a spiritual kingdom, which means He's restoring your heart. He's changing your desires. God wants day by day for you to start thinking more like Jesus for you to start acting more like Jesus, for you to start having more desires that are the desires of Christ. The Bible says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. The Bible says over and over that we are in Christ and we are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new have come. That's taking place right now. And guess what? It's not always pleasant, isn't it? It's painful. It's painful to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. It's hard to be Jesus in your marriage and put your spouse's needs before your own. It's hard to be Jesus in your family and and, and take care of your children and father them and, and mother them when sometimes they don't necessarily want to be fathered or mothered. It's tough to be Jesus in the workplace and honor your boss when they're not very honorable. It's tough to be Jesus And turn your eyes away from filth that's everywhere. On the internet, on billboards, in magazines, everywhere you turn. Even when you log on to check your email in Yahoo. Banner ads that you don't want to see. It's hard to be Jesus and turn your eyes and say, that's not who I am. But that's what Jesus is doing in our lives right now through the Holy Spirit. He is restoring us to be the human beings that we were created to be, but could not be because of sin. And we're all a restoration project, all right? The, the, Holy, the Holy Spirit's doing a work on us, all right? For those of you that love Fixer Upper, the insides of us are a broken down farmhouse and God's putting shiplap on us one, one slate at a time, all right? But it's going to take a long time. It's going to take eternity. But God's faithful to do it because God loves to restore. So how do I sum this up as we draw to a close? We've talked about the birth of restoration, the basis of restoration, the beneficiaries of restoration. Here's our summary statement right here. If God is restoring His heavenly kingdom here on earth, the local church is where the restoration project must first begin. Here's where it has to happen. 
Because the local church is where people are gathering who have the Holy Spirit who is the one who does the restoring. The rest of the world needs to look at those of us in this building and say, I want what they have. I've seen the work that God is doing in their life. Only God could change a person the way that person is changing. I want God to change me because I, be, I need to be restored as much as they are. Here's where it needs to happen. We need to be a reflection to the rest of the world that God is in the restoration business. Church is not a place of moral reform. It's not a place where you send your kids to make good choices till they go to college. All right, if you are a Christian, a byproduct of that is you will learn to make choices that honor God, and those are the best choices possible. But oh, all the time there are people sending children to us for Awana and Flight and VBS, and they don't care about Jesus. They don't want to see their child become this godly person. All they want to do is keep their kids out of trouble. And guess what? Send them. We want them. We'll love on them, but we're going to preach the gospel because church is not about moral reform. I want to be in a church where broken lives are being put back together, where broken marriages are being restored, where awful sinful habits are being changed, where desires are being changed, where broken families are coming back together, and where joy in Christ becomes unshakable. Only God can do that, but he's going to do it through his church. Church is plan A, and there is no plan B. He's either going to do it through his church, or it's not going to be done. And guess what? He is going to do it. So if he doesn't do it here, he'll do it somewhere else. And I say, Lord Jesus, do it here. As I look out at this room, and I know the lives of many of you, I can say he is doing it here. You know what? I left for seminary in 2013, and I came back, and I looked into the lives of the people in this church, and can I say something? Many of you have really grown. You're not who you once were. I pray that I'm different. I pray that I'm further along the road than I was when I left in 2013. Uh, sometimes it's painful. Uh, Dave was asking me on Friday, can, can you look back at some of the struggles in your life and see growth? And I said, very small. Because <laughs> I still struggle with the same things I struggled with years ago. But I am changing in ways I can't see, but it's happening and if you love Jesus and you're putting one foot in front of the other, you are changing. You can accelerate that growth through confession, repentance, faith, and spiritual disciplines. But w whether a little or a lot, God is restoring you if you remain faithful to Him. That's what we're here for. We're God's restoration project.